Good morning. So good to have all of you with us this day. <clears throat> this evening at, at sunset marks the first day of Hanukkah. And so I wish to all of you a Chag Hanukkah, Sameach, which means Happy Hanukkah holiday to you. If there is an understanding of Hanukkah that uh, we can appreciate, uh, it has to do with the fact that it's called a festival of lights as well, and it pertains to the light of the temple menorah that uh, was lit on the rededication of uh, the temple after uh, the armies of Judah or Judas Maccabeus or Judas Maccabees uh, and uh, and all in 164 BC came and and uh, and defeated the um, uh, the armies uh, the Syrio Grecian armies of uh, of uh, Antiochus Epiphanes who was in fact a forerunner of the Antichrist as as Daniel predicted back in uh, in his uh, prophecy. They wanted to, in the dedication of the temple, a rededication of the temple, uh, light the candles of the menorah, but they only had a one-day supply. Hence, when you see uh, a Hanukkah uh, menorah, and, and I'm doing this because I know a lot of people have asked why there are nine candlesticks on a Hanukkah menorah rather than seven, which is the normal temple uh, menorah uh, candle, candlestick. The uh, center candle, and it's not always in the center, but usually it's the one that sticks out from the other eight, is called the shamash, or the shamash. And that is the candle that means servant. It is the candle that had the one day supply of oil. But the miracle was that that oil lasted for eight days. So you have eight other candlesticks to represent all eight days of the, uh, of the lighting of the candle from one uh, day's supply. That was the miracle of Hanukkah. And what's interesting is that in, in John chapter 10, verses 22 and 23, especially John uh, 10, 22, it mentions on, on, the, on the feast of, of, uh, uh, of, of dedication. That is the mention of Hanukkah. Because Hanukkah comes from the word Hanuk, which means dedication or to dedicate. And um, so Jesus actually entered into the temple on the day of dedication. It tells us it was in winter, which we, of course we are now in the time of winter. Uh, and uh, what's even more significant to me is that as, as I studied chapters 9 and 10 of John, I realized that the story is really all compressed in time to that very same amount of time. And uh, in John chapter 9, a blind man is healed by Jesus. And Jesus mentions there in that particular chapter, he says, I am the light of the world. So it was, it's significant to me that Jesus would say that then in chapter 10, that he actually 
uh, is, is noted as going into the temple, actually into the Sol Solomon's porch, uh, on the time or in the time of Hanukkah. So it's a, it's a significant uh, holiday for the Jewish people, but it's something that we should also understand is very, always very closely connected to the uh, celebration of Christmas and the birth of Christ. But uh, we know that uh, when you read Isaiah chapter 9, it tells us that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And then, of course, on that, uh, on, on that time or on that day, Jesus came into this world, took upon himself flesh, and then fulfilled his calling. As We'll see something of that in our study this, uh, this morning. Anyway, I want to just uh, kind of give you that little... All of that was free, by the way. It was this free lesson on, on Hanukkah. Uh, actually, said more in the first service, just a little more time. But uh, I'd like to draw your attention to John chapter 6, if you will. So if you'll turn to John 6 and look at two verses today, verses 14 and 15. I've entitled this message, No Kingdom Without the Cross. And you'll see the reason for that title here in just a moment. A few weeks ago, we began uh, our study in the, in the uh, Gospel of John chapter 6. First 13 verses that gave us that wonderful account of Jesus feeding the 5,000 men and their families, which would amount to about 12 to 15,000 people, possibly. And uh, the miracle that took place that day uh, in the fact that Jesus fed all of these people from this little lunch of a little boy. Five little barley loaves, which were more like crackers, and two little fish. But out of that, he fed that many people. And uh, what we want to concern ourselves with is what happens immediately after that event. Immediately after they have collected the 12 baskets of the fragments of bread. And the people begin to see now something of, of immense meaning has taken place. And so we begin our, our reading in verse 14. Then those men, which would have to mean the, the men uh, of the number, 5,000, then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, this is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. So now we arrive at, at the sequel to this most wonderful event, one in which the Lord Jesus Christ ministered in wondrous grace to this great multitude of hungry people. But one thing that we, we didn't really talk about was that throughout the feeding of the 5,000 men and their families, which as I said earlier, could have numbered anywhere from 12 to 15,000 people, many of these people had no true appreciation of Jesus' blessed, uh, blessed identity. And I don't mean that in a bad way. But I, but I commented last week that here, here the, the, the men and the women were seated in, in groups of 50s and 100s, and so, you know, numbering of that many people out on a, in an open field, I mean, there were just, you know, just a, a, a multitude, a wave of people all sitting in, in these groups, but uh, really not aware of what was going to happen, how they were going to get fed, but they were fed. 
And the ones that really saw what happened were the disciples. The ones who said, we don't have enough food for these people. And yet Jesus continued to distribute food out of those, those five loaves and two fish and just continued to just tear bread and tear bread and tear bread until everybody was full. That's an amazing thing. So they didn't have, most of them did not have this appreciation of his identity or his divine personality. But this event went a long way to opening their minds and hearts about it. Because they had been attracted more than likely by some idle curiosity, even a taste of the sensational. And we even to this day like to see sensational things, don't we? This is the reason why when we're driving uh, out on the freeway maybe or out on the highway or whatever and we see that there's an accident up, up in front and you see cars turned over, big trucks turned over, as you're going by, of course, you slow down to do what? Or is it any wonder that National Enquirer has such a high subscription rate, you know? Uh, numbers of people that like that. Uh, do, do they even publish that anymore, National Enquirer? You know, the guys that said, you know, so-and-so met with an alien yesterday. Yeah. The sensational news, right? And we're still into this sensationalism, you know. But these people had this curiosity and, they, and, and really a taste for the sensational. And we know that really going back to verse 2 of this chapter because there in verse 2 it says, And a great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. They saw people get healed. And so they continued to follow Jesus to see what else was going to happen, what else he was going to do. Nevertheless, the Son of God, in the most tender compassion, seeing these people as sheep without shep a shepherd, he supplied their need for food by means of those loaves and two little fish. But the question for us today is this. This is the question we all need to ask. Not just about what happened then, but how what happened then affects us now. The question is, what effects did this have on those people? What effects did this miracle have on the women and the children and the men? What effects does it have on us? today, what Jesus did. I want you first of, of all to consider that the people were filled not only with food, but with the excitement of what had just happened. The excitement because of what Jesus had done in the manner in which he had provided for them. As I stated just a minute ago, many had followed Jesus out of curiosity, but some actually had been following him out of desperation, hoping that somehow he could help their plight, whatever their plight might have been. Maybe some of them were, were ill. Maybe some of them had uh, diseases. Maybe they were just poor and needing food while still others were following Jesus because it was their hope that he was the Messiah, that he was the Mashiach of Israel. 
But it's in that particular thought that we have to come to grips with this. They were hoping that he was Messiah and someone who would save them from the tyranny of Rome. The tyranny of their Roman captors. So consider the, the, the catalyst of this enthusiasm, this excitement that they had. Twelve to 15,000 people get fed by, by a little boy's happy meal. What an amazing thing. And then, 12 baskets of fragments of barley loaves which remained are gathered together. So what's the next thing? Verse 14. Then, those men, those men, being the 5,000, obviously, who had been following Jesus to this place. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, this is of a truth, that prophet. I want, I want to emphasize what they're saying. This is of a truth, that prophet. That prophet that should come into the world. What made them say that? This is of a truth, that prophet. Well, first of all, we need to realize that, that these people, whether they were actually illiterate or, illiterate or not, these people knew the Scriptures. I want to emphasize that here in just a moment of, of a few times. I, I want to emphasize the fact that they knew the Scriptures. And I emphasize it because I want you to know that you need to know the Scriptures. You have every opportunity to learn and to read and to grow and to study and to pray over the things that God is wanting to teach you through His Word. So we need to know the Scriptures. But these people, they knew the Scriptures. I mean, they used to, uh, they, they used the book of Psalms, actually, in their homes. And they would sing the Psalms in their homes. And they would sing the songs if they ever got by the, down to the temple. They would sing at temple services. They would sing when they were gathered together with their uh, with their loved ones. That was their, that, that was their book of, of learning, the book of Psalms. And they knew that in a particular Psalm, Psalm 132 verse 15, spoke of the Messiah of Israel. The prophet and king who was to come into the world. What was it that these men said? It is of a truth, that prophet is the one who is to come into the world. Well, let's look at Psalm 132, verse 15 for just a moment. For it says there, I will abundantly, notice, I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. And can you imagine all of these groups of people in hundreds and fifties on this hillside being given bread to the point where they are just completely filled. And this comes to mind We've read this. We've sung this. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. And word began to spread among the people. Why? This, this has to be the Mashiach. This has to be the Messiah. He's fulfilled the word of the psalmist. Look how he has satisfied us with bread. 
This must be the prophet indeed. What prophet would this have been? Well, in a word, the one that would be like Moses. You see, there's a verse of scripture for that too. And they knew it. Deuteronomy 18 verse 15. Let's look at that verse. Are you turning to that verse? Right, Got to hear the pages move on your Bibles. Deuteronomy 18 verse 15. And Moses speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is saying this. He says, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, speaking to the children of Israel, then out of Israel would come this prophet of thy brethren, a Jew, like unto me, Moses said, like me. Interesting, isn't it? The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren like unto me. But then he says this, unto him you shall hearken. To him you need to listen. To him you need to hear. You need to listen to him. Now I want to say these next few things in, in, a, in an era of comparison. Because what we need to remember is this. Moses, God, who God called to be the, the, you know, the deliverer of Israel from the bondage of Egypt, Moses was a type of Christ, delivering his people out of the bondage of sin. So Moses being a type then of Christ, of Messiah. When God, who was the one who actually provided the, the manna in the wilderness while they were going through the 40 years of wilderness, they, they were never hungry. God always provided, didn't he? Always provided. But here's the thing. The people always talked about Moses. How many of you remember the... Moses, Moses. So Moses, you know, so Moses was the, the focal point here. Moses had fed the people. I'm, I'm talking about from their mind, their mindset of what, what's happening. Moses had fed the people. And Moses had let them out of bondage. Well, Jesus had just fed the people. Huh. A prophet. A prophet from the midst of us of our brethren, like Moses. You see the connection? Uh, okay, all right. Just making sure. This could work today for some of us. So, Jesus just fed the people, the 5,000 and their families. He certainly could lead the people out of that bitter bondage of Rome. My apologies for having to deal with this microphone.
could lead them out of bitter bondage. But what these men were doing, so we need to understand, those men, these men were making a materialistic profession of faith in Mashiach, Jesus. A materialistic profession because they were thinking of an earthly, materialistic king, a Messiah who could meet both their personal and national needs. Meet their personal needs, feed them. Meet their national needs by leading them in battle against the Romans and defeating them. They were not thinking in terms of the spiritual. They were not thinking in terms of spiritual strength. They were not thinking in terms of spiritual blessings. Because spiritual blessings last forever. Spiritual strength, in essence, lasts forever. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus when he writes this letter to them. And it's a tremendous treatise on, on, on the person of Christ and, uh, and being in Christ, us as the church being in Christ. But he begins this letter in verse 3 of chapter 1 by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he has chosen us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Do you notice that everything is, is not so much about the temporal, but everything is about the eternal? And then he goes on and he says, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He has made us accepted in the Beloved, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. And then you can read it on, read on and on. But He's focused on the spiritual blessings in Christ. As it said in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And that's a wonderful thing. We all want that, don't we? There are churches today that, that speak of tremendous blessings that we should all have. But many of them are temporal. Nothing wrong with that because God has blessed us with everything we need for life and godliness through Jesus Christ. But unless we only focus on the temporal, What blessings really matter? See, here's the problem. Here, here's the dilemma that we're coming to today. One of the great reasons that men forsake Jesus Christ and have for centuries is due to certain demands made by the Lord. And I can tell you, we live in a, in a culture and a society that really has a hard time with absolute sovereign authority over us as individuals and as people. We struggle with anything that seems to be absolute. But the fact of the matter is, even in the Word of God, we are told that Christ has made certain demands upon His people, and this is what people struggle with, work against, try to rationalize to their own uh, understanding. 
Eventually, people forsake Christ because of these demands. Take, for example, the denial of self. The denial of self. Listen to the words of Jesus in Luke 9, 23, when he said to them all, he says, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself. You deny yourself, you take up your cross daily, and follow me. Lord, let's, let's first of all deal with this deny self business. I can not deny a little bit of myself. But the words that Jesus used are words of complete understanding that you, when you deny yourself, you deny yourself completely. And by taking up your cross, you are taking up the instrument of death, which means when you deny yourself, you die to yourself. But you don't only do it on Sundays and Wednesdays. You do it every day, daily, daily. And follow me. That's hard on the flesh. We don't like those words. But that's what he said. Now you and I know that we can't do this in our own power. We know that, don't we? Not by power or might, but by thy spirit, Lord. God himself even said that to us. Not by might or power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. So we understand that. So it tells us that so many people are really not thinking from the standpoint of spiritual leadership, but fleshly leadership. The flesh leading, not the spirit of God leading. Consider another thing, another demand of Jesus to us is separation from the world. To be separate from the world and to be holy unto the Lord, separate unto Christ. Separate from the world, separate unto Christ. Set apart from the world, set apart unto Jesus. That's what holy means, to be set apart. John 6, in the very same chapter that we're studying, a few verses later, in chapter 6, verses 26 and 27, Jesus says this, he answered them and he said, now realize this, we're still in the context of what took place on that hillside where Jesus fed the 5,000 men and their families. Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, you seek me, not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. This is why you are seeking me. Because you ate. And were filled and were satisfied by what you ate. And then he goes on to say this, Labor not for the meat which perishes. In other words, you've got to separate yourself from those things. Yes, you can eat. We need to eat. While we're on this earth, we, our bodies need to be fed so we can continue on in the things that God has called us to. But he says, labor not for the meat which perishes, but for that meat which, in, which endureth unto everlasting life. In other words, you need to labor for those things that are spiritual. Spiritual. Which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him has God the Father sealed. Now we definitely understand this 
more when we hear the words of Paul in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, when Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And I've said this many times, but do you know what our reasonable service is? Do you know what the mindset of people when they hear the word reasonable means? Reasonable to many people today means, well, you know what, I've, I've kind of weighed things out and I, I've kind of looked at the things that are kind of bad and, uh, and hard to do and I'll put those aside and it's more reasonable that I can follow along this particular course. But that's not what this word means. Uh, our reasonable service is our reasonable service of worship, which is we worship God with every breath we take, with every step we take, with everything we do, with every thought we think, we are to worship God. That's our reasonable service. Therefore, he goes on to say, and be not conformed to this world. We cannot do that if we are conformed or molded into the shape of the world. Be not conformed to the world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That's separation from the world. And people cringe because they hear those words that rattle their flesh. But then you add to that the thoughts that are written down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by the Apostle John, who not only wrote the Gospel, but he wrote three letters to the church and the book of Revelation. And in John, uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, he begins this statement, Love not the world, nor or neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, those three things you find in Genesis chapter 3 in the garden where the serpent was. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Separation from the world. A demand that Christ has made to us. So get back to the men in our text. They certainly saw Jesus as the Messiah for the things that he did. They certainly could see him as the prophet predicted in the time of Moses due to the specifics of his miracles and his wonders. They certainly could accept him as a king, a king that could lead them to battle against their enemy Rome. And by the way, and this is just a thought, this is not, you know, uh, uh, Charlieology here, you know. But it's a thought, something to think about. Could there be another reason why 5,000 men are mentioned? Specifically, 5,000 men? Sounds like that would make a perfect size army to be led by this Messiah prophet king. Just a thought. Just a thought. They looked around. Well, there's 5,000 of us. And we've got the Messiah who can do anything. We've got our king. But look at verse 15 of our text. Let's go back to John 6, 15. Because it says, When Jesus 
therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force and to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. You see, the problem wasn't that he was king. We all know that he's king. We all know that he, we all know that he will one day come and he's coming again. And he will come with ten thousands of his saints, and he will put his feet. He'll land his. He'll land his feet right on the Mount of Olives, and he, will, as it says in the book of, of, of Zechariah, <clears throat> and he will cross that valley uh, right up to the eastern gate, and he will open that gate that right now is 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 cemented in. He will open that gate with his ten thousands of his saints, and he will go and he will sit on the throne of David for a thousand years. We know that because that's the word of God. So we know he's a king. But the problem wasn't that he was king. The problem was that the people were ready to take him by force and make him a king. That's the problem here. But it's interesting that the Greek word that is used to describe this taking by force is a familiar one to those of us who study Bible prophecy, especially as it applies to the rapture of the church. Because the word that is used for the taking of Jesus by force is the word harpazo. H-A-R-P-A-Z-O in the, in the Greek. Harpazo. Which, of course, means to snatch away. To pluck out. To catch away. That's what they were intending to do with Jesus. To snatch him away by force and make him their king. Make him their king. That, doesn't, that, that, that just sounds wonderful. What it sounds like to me is people that will not accept God on his own terms. And do you know that that's what's happening in many churches today? Because they have set aside the word of God, they are now putting demands upon God to say, listen, Lord, we want you to be God, but we want you to be God according to our terms. So we're going to change a few things. And we're going to accept a few things that are, you know, you've said for years are not right, but we're going to say that they're, they're, you know, because justice is more important, you see. Our form of justice, our form of fairness, our form of tolerance. Wow. That's political correctness gone amok, not in the country, but just in the church. Because we've put aside the word of God and the truth of the word of God. But here's the thing. Go back to these men. They weren't aware of one more office that Jesus as Messiah would have to fulfill. Yes, he was the prophet mentioned by Moses. Yes, he is a king. And he is fulfilling his office of prophet and king, his office as a prophet and king, but they forgot one, the office of priest. And not just any priest, the office of high priest. Mashiach is to be the high priest and not according to the priesthood 
that was assigned to Aaron and the Levites. The priesthood of Mashiach would be the priesthood of Melchizedek. And we don't have time to go into that today. But if you've read the book of Hebrews and the book of Genesis, you realize it is a significant priesthood that only Messiah can be a part of. With that in mind, to fulfill the office of high priest means that there can be no kingdom without the cross. There can be no kingdom without the cross. Jesus had to fulfill his role as high priest and offer the sacrifice of himself who was the Lamb of God also. He was the high priest but he was also the Lamb of God. So Jesus had to offer the sacrifice of himself upon the altar of the cross of Calvary. But that was only to be done on God's terms and not on anyone else's terms or in anyone else's time frame. God's terms. God's time frame. Before Jesus began his earthly ministry, listen, he faced three temptations from Satan himself. You can read about this in Matthew chapter 4. He faced three temptations. You remember, he goes out there 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. And, 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 and he doesn't eat he, for 40 days and 40 nights. And physically, he's grown hungry. And Satan himself comes and tempts Jesus three times. The first time was to turn, you know, to have Jesus turn stones into bread and feed himself, feed his hungry self. Of course, we all know what the reply was. The reply from Jesus was, man shall not eat, or man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. But the first temptation was, turn those stones into bread. The second temptation was that after being taken to the temple of, of Jerusalem and actually to the pinnacle of the temple, Satan tempted Jesus to jump off the pinnacle of the temple with the hope that the angels would catch him. But we find Jesus there taken to the temple. Keep that in mind. For the third temptation was that after Satan has taken Jesus to see all of the whole of the world, To offer that to him, he had to do one thing. He had to bow his knee and worship Satan. That was the temptation. Those three temptations are significant because they parallel the expectation of the first century Jewish culture awaiting the coming Messiah. Because in their understanding, a a, a people's Messiah could feed the multitudes. And what was Jesus tempted to do? Turn stones into bread. Did Jesus have to turn stones into bread to feed the 10, 12, 13, 14,000 people? No. Jesus just continued distributing from the little he had and showed that he could distribute it all because he's the creator of all things. But in their minds, a people's Messiah could feed the multitude. Secondly, a king rooted in the law would find his home at the place of sacrifice. Well, where was the place of sacrifice? In Jerusalem. 
And thirdly, a man who would be king, not only would be king for Israel, but the whole world. But here's where the rub is on all of that. Jesus would meet all three of those roles. Provider, sacrifice, and kingship, but not as a result of temptation, but as a result of obedience. Obedience to the Father. Obedience to the Father. It had to be in His terms, not in Satan's terms or anyone else's. So listen carefully. Please listen carefully. We often want Christ to quote-unquote rule over us, right? We want Christ to rule over us, but we want Him to rule over us on our terms. We want to be forgiven. But if it's based upon our terms, we want to be forgiven, but Lord, we want a little bit of leeway because I really don't want to forgive that person over there. Are you getting me here? Hello? We want to be forgiven, but on our terms. Sometimes we say things like, Lord, give me what I want, but I don't want the hard stuff. Or else we might say, don't, listen, Lord, don't, please, please don't tell me to go to church. When I come on my own, you'll be happy to see me. Is that the attitude that you have when you come? Don't tell me to come to church. Don't tell me to pray. Don't tell me to tithe. Don't tell me to turn, on, turn off my TV or, or turn my computer off. Don't tell me to do any of these things. Eventually what we say to God is don't tell me to forgive, don't tell me to love, and don't tell me to commit my life to you. But you can still be Lord, but on my terms. Don't tell me to show up or give up something or go out and so, somewhere to serve or anything else. I want you as king, but I want you as king on my terms. Doesn't that just sound ridiculous? Folks, it takes nerve to say something like that to God. It takes what they say in, in, in Yiddish, chutzpah. And I emphasize the chutzpah. It takes chutzpah, nerve, to say something like that to God. You know what the you do know what the uh, definition of chutzpah is. A, a young man is 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 tried for murder, the murder of his own father and mother. And after fo being found guilty, he throws himself on the mercy of the court to say that he's an orphan. That's chutzpah. So you got it now. What nerve? What nerve? Considering all that Jesus Christ has done for us, considering all that God has done for us, whatever He has asked of us is 
small. Right? You understand the, the, that, that difference? Whatever God has, has done for us, I mean, all that God has done for us, all that Jesus did on the cross on our behalf, what he did in dying for our sins, shedding his blood for the forgiveness of our sins, being, uh, you know, dying and, and being buried, and, and then three days later arising from the dead. I mean, everything that God has done for us, for him to ask us of anything in light of all of that is really small. I think of the words of the Apostle Paul who said this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 14-18. to 18. He said, Knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you, for all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God, for which cause we faint not. But though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day for our light affliction. Stop. For our light affliction. You see that little phrase? Our light affliction? Have you ever read on in that second book or second letter of Paul to the Corinthian church? Even in the first letter of Paul, there are many times, and in other places as well, he mentions a lot of the, of the afflictions that Paul has gone through for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and, and the things that he went through, the persecutions that he dealt with, the beatings that he received, you know, <clears throat> being in shipwrecks here, and, 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 and then even... Uh, uh, going hungry, you know, not having enough food, not having all kinds of stuff happen to him. And all these things are happening to him. And yet he calls that light affliction. Today, in this 21st century, at this time, we have brothers and sisters in Christ who are dying for the faith of Jesus Christ, who are being beheaded for Jesus Christ, who are being crucified for Jesus Christ, who are being burned alive for Jesus Christ. And yet Paul, in understanding all of that, would say, but this is just light affliction. So let me tell you that we here in the United States, even though we are going through a, a certain level of persecution because we are believers in Jesus Christ, we, we, don't, we, we need to fully understand what this means because we don't. What light affliction means. But if we look at it in this context, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment. In comparison to everything that God has done for us. Everything that he's done through his only begotten son, Jesus. Everything that he's done through the things that Jesus suffered on our behalf. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We're back to that issue of what is temporal and what is eternal. To want Jesus as king on man's own terms is to want the kingdom only here and only now. You know, there's a, there's a movement that has been around a while, a movement that says, you know, we, we as the church, you know, we need to realize that, that uh, Jesus isn't going to come until we clean up the world. This, it's called kingdom now theology. It's very closely tied into other movements like uh, 
you know, replacement theology where uh, some people teach that, you know, they, there's, uh, there's really no Israel anymore, that all the blessings of Israel now belong to the church. You know, they, they just, they've just messed up the Word of God. They've just taken it totally out of context. They, they're even the ones who today believe that all prophecies already been fulfilled and, you know, there's nothing else to be fulfilled, which is just ludicrous and it's lunacy actually. It's crazy. Because everything that Jesus talked about in Matthew 24 about what was to be taking place is happening now. And there is an Israel. And there are a people that he's brought back into the land. And he's going to bless them eventually. But here's the point is that if we only want Jesus on our terms as king, it is only to want the kingdom now and here only. That's temporary. It just doesn't work that way, folks. Jesus went to the cross, making it very clear that, king, that his kingdom is eternal and not of this world. The last scripture I want you to go to is in John chapter 18. It is a passage that deals with Jesus before Pontius Pilate, before he goes to the cross. Up to this time now, Jesus has been taken through his, his unjust trial. He has, has been beaten. He's gone through all kinds of things uh, physically. And he's brought before Pilate again. And we're told in John 18, verse 33, Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again, and called Jesus, and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this, uh, sayest thou this thing of thyself? Or did others tell it thee, uh, thee of me? In other words, are you saying this by yourself? Or did somebody else tell you this? And Pilate answered, am I a Jew? He kind of, you know, was smug about it. He says, am I a Jew? He says, then thy own nation and, thy, and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? And Jesus answered, and please note this. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence, not from here. And then take note of this. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king? And Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am king. Now take note of the second half of this verse. Because it pertains to the few days that are ahead of us here during this holiday season. If you really want to know why Jesus came to this earth, why he was born, he tells you himself. He says, to this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Do you know what that refers back to? The prophecy of Deuteronomy 18.15 where Moses said, there is a prophet who will come out of you. Of him, you are to listen to him. And what does he say? Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. We are either of the truth 
by God's terms or we're not. There's no all other kinds of alternatives. You are of the truth. You hear his voice. You hear his voice because we must serve him according to his terms. He is going to be king according to his terms and his time frame. When he comes again, he is going to come again according to his father's time frame, not ours. We want him to come. The word Maranatha means, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We want him to come. But we can't rush the process. We talk about Islamic terrorists, you know, as apocalyptic today, trying to bring about the apocalypse themselves through their terrorism and their hatred of the things of God. Well, give me another hour on this one, but we're, we don't have the time. The point is this. We are to live for Christ. We are to deny ourselves. We are to take up our cross daily and we are to follow him. We are not to be conformed to this world, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds and to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We don't make him king. He's already king. And he knows the time of his coronation. So folks, let's surrender to his terms. Amen? Let's come to Jesus according to his terms. And by the way, what are his terms? I'll close with this because I know guys want to come out here and sing just one more song for us and, and we want to get going on this day. But folks, listen to this. Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can follow his terms. But not in the flesh, in the spirit. Amen? Father, we thank you. And we bless you for this day. How we ask that you, Lord God, would have your way with us. And that, Lord, you will always be the one that we listen to. I know we struggle with that, Father, because of the flesh. But today, Lord God, we want to make that commitment of faith to you. Some of us may want to just recommit our lives to you today. Others of us have come to the realization that we have been trying to get you to, to, to come to our own terms, and yet, Lord, we're realizing that's not going to happen. So maybe the best thing for us to do is to surrender ourselves to you completely. But whatever the case may be, may we do so according to the Spirit of God. May we do so according to your Spirit. May we do so as you lead us today. 
to find, Lord, our peace in you, to find that shalom, that wholeness and completeness in you. Lord, we, we bow ourselves to you now. We ask, Lord, that you would indeed minister to our hearts today and strengthen us, Lord, in these things. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.